Happy Saturday, everyone. Back in the listener mail segment of our podcast on the Anglo-Zulu War, we mentioned a previous episode from the archive on Deaf President Now, which originally came out on May 24th of 2014. We said perhaps we would release that episode soonish as a Saturday classic, and we didn't exactly do it super soon, but here it is. Not too late in the game. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So just really a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned our rule of thumb about the sort of the, the most recent history we normally talk about. Right? Yep. So like that's the late 60s, early 70s. Usually. Naturally, having just said that, just now. We're going to do something today that breaks that rule just a little bit. Um, because I've been looking for a while for a podcast subject that was in some way related to a disabled person or disability rights. And the trouble is a lot of these stories have this distinctly inspirational overtone. And there's this whole thread of like overcoming hardship. And it's very presented in a way that ultimately comes off as being like an a heartwarming, up, uplifting tale told to non-disabled people about a disabled person. Right. It seems like a very positive take on things initially, but when you stop and think about it, you kind of realize that it sets up people with disabilities as other. Uh-huh. And having to overcome things to be equal. Yeah. And that's not really how it should be. Yeah. And it's not that we never tell inspirational stories. I mean, we do that pretty often on the show. Like when we talked about Elizabeth Blackwell, who was the first woman to earn an MD in the United States, that was a hugely inspirational story and event. It especially inspired other women. But if you told a story today about a woman going to medical school, that would be just a story about a woman going to medical school. Yes. However, if we told, not we necessarily, but like the American media, if the American media told the story of a blind doctor in 1849, the tone would be pretty similar to the story of a blind doctor in 2014. Yes. It drives me a little bit nuts. Yeah. Um, and I know it drives other people nuts also. So I was really, I've been on the lookout for a while for a story that would not fit that mold because I kind of don't want the, you know, the podcast to contribute to that pattern of setting people up as being inspirations for other people rather than, you know, actual human beings with agency and, you know, the ability to do things on their own. Um, which is why when we did that thread on Facebook a couple of weeks ago that said, please tell us events to talk about. And someone said, deaf president now, please. And I looked into what that was about. I said, okay, we're going to break our rule. This happened in 1988. Some of you may remember it. I don't personally remember it. I do not either. It was national news at the time, though. Uh, and this is essentially a student protest that changed the course of both Gallaudet University. I have also heard it pronounced Gallaudet with, like, the U sound. I've heard people pronounce it both ways. Uh, and also deaf culture in America. That makes it sort of exciting and new. It's, it's very exciting and new. I'm definitely like outside kind of our stuff because it is a little more modern. It is a little more. And researching it was a very different process because of that. <laughs> it's well documented and yes. recent. Uh, so for background, Gallaudet University is a United States school that's dedicated to the education of deaf and hard of hearing students. It's also a bilingual university. 
It has classes taught in both American Sign Language and in English. And its funding comes from both federal sources and non-government sources. There are also a few hearing students who enroll every year. And usually these are people who want to have a career that's in some way closely related to the deaf and hard of hearing community. So if someone wants to teach at a school for the deaf or to work with uh, organizations for the deaf, uh, things like that. A lot of times those people will decide to go to college at Gallaudet. And in addition to all of that, Gallaudet is also really viewed as the heart of the deaf community and of deaf culture in the United States. And the school started in 1856, so fairly recent when compared to some other universities. Uh, and that was when former Postmaster General Amos Kendall donated some of his land outside of Washington, D.C. to start a school for blind and deaf children. And at that point, schools for the deaf had really only existed in the United States for less than 40 years. So the concept was still very new. And 12 of the first students at Kendall School were deaf, and the other six of the students that were enrolled that first go-around were blind. A year later, the school was incorporated as Columbia Institution for the Instruction of the Deaf and Dumb and Blind. And the school's superintendent was Edward Minor Gallaudet, whose father, Thomas Hopkins Gallaudet, had founded the first permanent school for the deaf in the United States, and that was in Hartford, Connecticut. The elder Gallaudet had traveled around Europe to learn about teaching methods for deaf children after he had met a young deaf girl who really did not have any access to education at all. Edward's mother, Sophia Fowler Gallaudet, was deaf and also served as the Columbia Institution's matron. In 1863, Congress passed a bill to, quote, authorize the Columbia Institution for the Deaf and Dumb and the Blind to confer degrees. And President Abraham Lincoln signed this into law on April 8, 1864. And so with this, the Columbia Institution became the National College for the Deaf and Dumb. President Lyndon Johnson signed an act creating the Model Secondary School for the Deaf at Gallaudet in 1969. And Richard Nixon signed a similar bill the year after that, creating an elementary school for the deaf. And these two schools are actually part of Gallaudet today. Acts of Congress have also continued to shape the university, changing the name to Gallaudet College in honor of Thomas Hopkins Gallaudet, and also granting it university status in 1986. Diplomas for graduates of the school are also signed by the current president. So it's easy to see all of this governmental involvement in the establishment and development of the school as a hearing nation attempting to see to the best interests of its deaf citizens. And that was one of the sentiments that actually sparked the Deaf President Now protest in 1988. Another piece of this was a schism that kind of starts with two different schools of thought about the best way to provide education for deaf people. And this goes all the way back to the earliest days of Schools for the Deaf. On one end were the oralists who thought that deaf people should learn to speak and to read lips to better fit into a hearing world. And then on the other end of the spectrum are manualists who thought that deaf people should learn sign language to communicate with each other. Edward Minor Gallaudet supported the use of sign language. He knew and used sign language because of his mother. On the other hand, Alexander Graham Bell, inventor of the telephone, whose mother was also deaf, was completely in favor of the oral method. So in the earliest days of education for deaf people in the United States, educators really fiercely debated which method was better. And the idea of signing versus speaking really extended into every aspect of uh, of people's lives. It affected how doctors worked with deaf families and how parents raised their deaf children 
And in some cases, it even created a schism within the deaf community itself between the deaf people who could sign and consider themselves to be what's now called culturally deaf and the deaf people who could not. And to add to all of this context, every president of Gallaudet University had been a man who could hear. And we'll talk more about that uh, after a quick word from our sponsor. So in the earliest years after Gallaudet was founded, it was a legitimate claim that there weren't really any deaf people in the United States who were qualified to be president of the school because before that point, there had been really almost no way for a deaf person to get a college education. There just was no educational system for deaf people in the United States. At Gallaudet and at other schools for the deaf, whether they taught manualist or oralist methods, were overwhelmingly people who could hear. Some schools for the deaf did not allow deaf teachers at all, believing them to be unqualified to teach deaf students. And even as we were approaching the part of history where this protest took place, Gallaudet continued to be taught and run mostly by hearing people. This went on for many years of its history. By the 1980s, only about 20% of the faculty and administrative staff were deaf. In 1983, Gallaudet's fourth president, Dr. Edward C. Merrill, retired. He and all the presidents before him had all been able to hear, as we mentioned. He and others actually started to advocate for a deaf president to lead the university, but that idea really did not gain much traction. Then between 1983 and 1987, Gallaudet saw this series of presidents come through in quick succession, And the resignation of the seventh president, Jerry Lee, was really sudden and kind of caught a lot of people by surprise. And at that point, the board of trustees brought on a consultant to try to get the best candidate for his replacement. And it put together this search committee of faculty, staff, alumni and students. At this point, the argument that there weren't any qualified deaf people that could be president of the university was really completely invalid. Yeah, that was gone. Uh, There were more than 100 deaf people in the United States who had doctoral degrees. And many of them were Gallaudet alumni, as were some of the past hearing presidents, and had experience in school administration. So there were some options. There were lots of options. And a pool of 87 applicants was narrowed down to six finalists. Three of them could hear and three of them were deaf. Those six finalists were then narrowed down to three. Dr. Harvey Corson was a deaf man who was superintendent of the Louisiana School for the Deaf. Dr. I. King Jordan was a deaf man who was, at the time, serving as Gallaudet's dean of the College of Arts and Sciences. And Elizabeth Zinzer was a hearing woman who was assistant chancellor of the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. So at this point, we had two of the three final candidates who were deaf. Uh, The student body, the faculty and alumni, along with many deaf advocacy groups, had been lobbying for quite some time for the university to have a deaf president. They had also been getting letters of support from people like then-Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush, then-Senators Bob Dole of Kansas and Bob Graham of Florida, and other politicians supporting the idea of putting a deaf person into the presidency. Here is part of George Bush's letter on the matter. I've become aware of the two basic principles that underlie the disability rights movement, the right of disabled people to control their own lives and the right to integration and involvement in society. 
Gallaudet University has a critical role to play in advancing these principles. It is held in the highest regard by deaf people throughout the United States and the world. It provides an excellent education and a meaningful future for thousands of deaf persons. More importantly, Gallaudet University is a symbol of leadership and opportunity, not only for deaf people, but for all of us. His letter also points out that considering how Gallaudet is funded by the federal government, it has an obligation to set an example in this matter. Um, The sentiment he's kind of expressing here, a lot of times you will hear today expressed as nothing about us without us, which is basically don't you go making laws for people without consulting those people about those laws. (laughs) You may be well intentioned, but not well informed. Well, and I feel like we should say uh, everyone involved in this story had good intentions. Yeah, like there was nobody who was setting out to just make the make the deaf community suffer. That's not what anybody had in mind. No, and I'm sure everyone making decisions they weren't just you know throwaway decisions. They were considering them thoughtfully, but sometimes not always with all of the best information at hand. Right. Uh, A letter from the student body government informing the faculty of a rally being planned to support the selection of a deaf president began, the idea of a deaf person being named president of this university is exceptionally important to us and to the entire community of people concerned with deafness and education and, in our view, now demands our action. So the students had been rallying for a week in advance of the announcement of who the next president would be. They had been distributing flyers, even camping out on the president's lawn. The student body president, Greg Leibach, wrote to Zinsser and asked her to withdraw her candidacy, which would have guaranteed that the next president would be deaf. The text of a flyer for a rally that was held on March 1st reads as, It's time. In 1842, a Roman Catholic became president of the University of Notre Dame. In 1875, a woman became president of Wellesley College. In 1875, a Jew became president of Yeshiva University. In 1926, a black person became president of Howard University. And in 1988, the Gallaudet University presidency belongs to a deaf person to show our solidarity behind our mandate for a deaf person of our university. You are invited to participate in a historical, all caps, rally. Yeah. So basically everyone, (laughs) seemingly everyone involved was really behind the idea of a deaf person being named president. And with all of these factors combined, like with such a huge outpouring of advocacy on the part of the student body and the alumni and everyone else, uh, and, you know, the vice president of the United States and senators and all of these other people saying that we really think this is what's time, people pretty much thought that what was going to happen was that either Dr. Corson or Dr. Jordan, the two deaf candidates, one of them would be selected as president. However, on March the 6th, 1988, the Board of Trustees announced that the next president of Gallaudet would be Dr. Elizabeth Zenser. So basically everyone had been expecting the Board of Trustees to announce a deaf president. And what everyone was also expecting and had been planning for was for the Board of Trustees to come to the campus to announce the new president. But instead, what they did is they sent out press releases at 6.30 in the morning, which was about an hour and a half before anybody thought the announcement was going to come. It is not uh, perhaps surprising to find out that the reaction was immediate and it was huge. People were furious. A crowd had already been forming to wait for the announcement, and at the encouragement of Gary Olson from the National Association of the Deaf, they spontaneously marched to the hotel where the board had been meeting to demand an explanation. 
when they got there, there was basically a press conference going on. The chair of the board, Jane Spillman, and uh, Phil Braven, who was one of the deaf trustees, were answering questions from reporters. And the protesters interrupted and demanded to speak to the board. Eventually, some of the protesters were allowed to meet with the board. And during that meeting, Spillman allegedly said that deaf people could not function in the hearing world. She denied ever having said this, claiming that it was a misunderstanding by her interpreter. Regardless, it really solidified opinion against her, and many people cited it in letters and speeches afterwards. So whether she actually said it or not, it still really was a big black mark. It became hugely associated with her, and there are lots and lots of letters that were sent to the board or to newspapers or things like that that were like, anyone who would say this should not be running the school for the deaf. So... As protesters talked to the board, they didn't reach any kind of agreement, and eventually the crowd dispersed. Uh, But by the morning, a full-scale civil rights protest was in the works at Gallaudet. Students were holding sit-ins, they boycotted, they held rallies and marches, they wrote letters in support of their objectives. Um, And in their letters and their speeches and, and their addresses that they gave, people framed this as a civil rights issue. Uh, And additionally to all of that, They blocked access to the campus by forming a human chain to keep the faculty and administrators out, effectively shutting things down. And as the news spread, uh, civil rights leader Reverend Jesse Jackson wrote a letter of support to the students of the university. This is a portion of it. The Board of Trustees has an obligation to respond to student concerns with sensitivity. There is no time to resolve this dispute equitably. The problem is not that the students do not hear. The problem is that the hearing world does not listen. The entire nation owes the students of Gallaudet its gratitude for reminding us once again that each of us has the ability and the right to achieve. I urge the board of the university to move forward and recognize the justice of its students' demands. By the day after the announcement, the the protesters had created a list of these four demands to present to the board. They were number one, Elizabeth Zenser must resign and a deaf person be elected president. Number two, Jane Spillman must step down as chairperson of the Board of Trustees. Number three, deaf people must constitute a 51% majority on the board. And number four, there would be no reprisals against any student or employee involved in the protest. These demands were presented to the board in a three-hour-long meeting. However, the board did not yield. So following that meeting... uh. The board had planned to make an announcement in the university auditorium, basically saying that they were not yielding their position. But before Spillman could begin, a deaf faculty member named Harvey Goodstein came on stage and announced it himself. And he encouraged everyone to leave, which they did, and spontaneously marched to the Capitol building and held an impromptu rally there. I'm not sure if we have said that the school is basically in Washington, D.C. So a lot of the rallying and protesting happened sort of in the context of these huge, important government buildings for the government of the United States. And the next day was Tuesday, March 8th. And while the campus was open, most of the students boycotted their classes. It was about this time that the protests formed the Deaf President Now Council, which included representatives from the student body, the faculty, the staff, alumni, as well as people who worked as interpreters, fundraisers, and legal liaisons. Greg Leibach, president of the student body, became one of the protest's prominent leaders. Also among the students leading the protest were Jerry Covell and Brigida Bourne, who had been running mates to lead the student government, and Tim Raris, who was majoring in government. And together, they were all known as the Gallaudet Four. Yeah, they are cited frequently as like the four most prominent 
student leaders of the protest. And the protest was really ongoing. It became national news. And as these meetings and protests and rallies went on, with both sides becoming just more and more entrenched in their stances, Greg Leibach, Elizabeth Zenser, and actress Marley Matlin appeared on ABC's Nightline on Wednesday, March 9th, to talk about the protest. Nightline closed captioned the broadcast for all viewers, with anchor Ted Koppel saying it was because the network had learned that many deaf people did not actually have access to closed captioning. You can see this on YouTube today. Pretty cool. Uh, which is also kind of one of the weird things about working on this episode is like footage that still exists of the event. It's easy to find and look at. Easy to find and watch (laughs) at your desk. So after several days of protests and boycotts and sit-ins and marches and rallies and letters, Elizabeth Zenser announced her resignation on the night of March 10th. And so for sort of a brief moment, all of these rallies of protest briefly turned to celebration. But the students also recognized that they still had a long way to go. A lot of them started wearing buttons that said three and a half, since at this point, only half of one of their four demands had actually been met. And at this point, it was Friday and spring break was scheduled to start, but many students decided to stay on campus. The start of the weekend was fairly quiet, and then the board reconvened on Sunday. That night, the board held one last press conference in this event in which they made a number of announcements. The first was that Jane Spillman had resigned as the board chair. The second was that Phil Braven, who was deaf, had been named as her replacement. The third was that a task force was going to be established, and that task force's job would be to figure out the best way to get 51% of the board of directors to be comprised of deaf people. They also announced that there would be no reprisals for the people who had been participating in the protest. And their last announcement was that I, King Jordan, would be the next president. And in the words of Greg Leibach, quote, Now we have respect. We have everything. It's just the beginning for all of us. And in the words of Jerry Coble, he said, DPN has profoundly and significantly affected my life. It made me more committed to serve my people. It made me more determined to have America and the public accept and respect deaf people, allow deaf people to control their destiny, and preserve the beauty, tradition, and values of our culture and language. The ultimate goal is to see deaf people empower themselves and know their rights, resulting in necessary changes in all walks of life. So in addition to serving as president... I. King Jordan actually became a huge advocate for deaf people and for the disabled community in general. He was a lead witness in support of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Kind of interesting side note about his story Mm -hmm. is that he was able to hear when he was born and he became deaf as a result of an accident when he was in like his early 20s. He was a young man. Uh, And he enrolled at Gallaudet as a deaf person but he did not yet know how to sign. So he oh. sort of had to learn how to do sign language and everything else at the same time as he was studying uh, at university. I would think that would be extremely stressful. I think that was extremely stressful. He actually did this talk at my alma mater, which I found on the Internet, which all just makes it a, a weird <laughs> circle of events, where he talks about the story and talks about how there were some people who were very patient with him and some people who were not. Uh, in part because of the schism that we've talked about before between manual and oral instruction. There were people who um, really firmly believed that being taught sign language was the only way 
to do it and were not really patient with someone who knew how to speak and not sign. Yeah. So anyway, uh, following DPN, a number of other laws were passed that gave the deaf community better access to jobs and schools and technology, as well as legal protection. In the five years after the protest was over, there were more laws and bills passed related to the rights of the deaf community and access to resources and education than had been passed in the entire previous history of the United States as a nation. And the protests also united the deaf community in many ways. So the schism between oralists and manualists has continued until today, uh, with deaf people who know sign language sometimes considering themselves, quote, culturally deaf, while people who speak and read lips are not. Tim Raris, who was one of the Gallaudet Four, described it this way, quote, Before DPN, I was not one to interact with deaf people who were not culturally deaf like myself. Deaf people have a history of fighting among themselves. Yet during DPN, we all work together for that common goal, a deaf president. Never mind the mode of communication our president would choose or his background as long as he was deaf. And together we accomplish that goal. So today, most children who are deaf uh, learn sign language. Like it, there's, there's much less debate on the front of uh, do I teach a child sign, sign language or do I not? A much bigger debate now is about cochlear implants. Yes. Uh, and that is a whole other issue that we're not going to talk about on this podcast. But no, that's like a, a can of worms, both medical and cultural, that is beyond the scope of today's. Way outside of the scope. Uh, I. King Jordan was president of Gallaudet until December 31st, 2006. And in a weird twist of events, uh, after having been this, you know, this historic person uh, put into this role, the end of his tenure as president was also marked with protests as the student body objected to the way the search um, for his replacement was handled and for the candidate that was selected for that as well. Um, that story does not have quite the civil rights implications as this one did, but uh, it was kind of an odd thing to have his entire time as president kind of bookended by these two massive student protests. Yeah, part of it, I mean, having worked in a university, I can imagine that since he served for roughly 18 years, they haven't had to put together one of those committees. Yeah. So it becomes kind of a starting from scratch every time. Right. Even if you have guidelines, it's still most of the people that are in those positions have never done that job before. Yeah. Searching for somebody. He, he did have a long tenure. So I can president. imagine there would be some... What do we do? Yes. And students feel strongly about their universities, which is good. Uh, I remember being just all angry about various administrative decisions when I was in college. I don't remember. It's okay. Yeah, I was busy with other things. It's fine. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for this Saturday classic. Since this is out of the archive, if you heard an email address or a Facebook URL or something similar during the course of the show, that may be obsolete now. So here is our current contact information. We are at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then we're at Missed in History all over social media. That is our name on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, and Instagram. Thanks again for listening. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 